This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a lightning storm igniting some natural gas from a leak offshore uh, near Mexico, New Jersey versus Maine, some of the different legislation uh, that's going on over there as far as use of offshore um, assets, you know, federal versus state waters. Um, Maine's put in a big ban on using offshore wind in state water, so we'll chat through that. Um, turbine validation at the Galloper wind farm uh, offshore and then beyond wind hydrogen project that's getting a little bit of steam we'll talk about this unique power pod wind turbine which is a one kilowatt prototype for residential use and also we'll talk a little bit about offshore wind um, some of the engineering challenges and how ocean cleanup might have a relatable story to some of this unproven technology before we get going let me remind you, uh, you can easily sign up for Uptime Tech News, which is just our weekly newsletter in the description uh, or show notes of this podcast. And that's just getting a weekly update from us as, hey, here's our latest podcast. Check it out. Here's some other news from around the web. So if you're interested in staying up to date, definitely check out Uptime Tech News in the show notes below. So, Alan, how are you doing, sir? Let's talk about lightning, your favorite thing. Um, this lightning storm uh, out in the waters near Mexico Looks like it, it ignited some natural gas leak from a pipe, um, you know, well below the surface. So there's a big uh, gas explosion in the Gulf of Mexico next to an oil rig. Uh, and one of the byproducts of oil drilling is you get natural gas in those same spots, right? So they had a lightning s- storm come through and ignite that gas. And it looks like this a big apocalyptic uh, fire in the middle of the ocean like wow there's water wow there's fire those two don't go together there must be something wrong with the earth or wrong with humans involvement with the earth that caused this big thing to happen uh no none of that was true and the the twitter uh bouncing around from environmentalist groups so to speak and business groups on the other side or pro drilling groups on the other side which is ridiculous on both ends a little bit the, the fire was put out within a couple of hours uh and they had a handle on how to go do that it sounds like because they got it out uh but does it benefit green energy no we still need to be drilling in the gulf of mexico for now does it benefit the the sort of the oil dr- drilling community no because you had an accident right so anytime there's an accident it just gets blown up worldwide i mean that 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 image i saw from twitter from all across the world so you know neither side is right i think from the lightning protection side you want to look at what happened and the post-mortem on this is going to be really really interesting to see 
what caused that to happen? What was it? What was the chain of events that caused that to happen? And how do you prevent that in the future? Obviously, they had a plan of attack of how to go shut it off, and that was the the, the right thing to do. But you know, you want to prevent that from occurring in the first place because fire in any oil drilling situation or uncontrolled fire is a problem and it, it creates a huge safety risk for everybody's on that oil rig um, so i think the takeout from this is that hey we need to go look at <laughs> what the root causes were and to disseminate the solution to everybody in the gulf of mexico like this is what we're going to do to pre- prevent this from happening in the future and from the engineering side i think that's the ultimate benefit out of it. So luckily no one really got seriously hurt in this event, but it does raise some red flags like, hey, we need to really be careful because we're dealing with explosive materials and and there's a lot of lightning storms uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, so. All right, so moving on, uh, some interesting sort of conflicting state laws. So I think it's really interesting to see the difference between what California is doing versus what Maine's doing. And obviously, we understand the reason and Maine's not really um, an opponent of offshore wind. They're just trying to find a better balance of protecting their their fishermen. So in California, um, the state Senate committee has approved a bill to set a goal for um, you know, offshore production. And they're trying to make this into law so they can just continue to set, you know, these standards that we're going to keep moving towards creating more jobs and get more offshore wind set up. Whereas over in Maine, they've prohibited offshore wind farms in state waters, which that's the first three miles offshore after which it becomes federal water. So just a stark difference. And again, like uh, Governor Janet Mills is not a She's not an opponent of wind. She's a, 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 a outspoken supporter of wind energy, but she is just trying to find a compromise with fishermen who are, like we've talked about last week, rightly concerned about their livelihood and continuing to, to deliver on, you know, Maine is thought of, when you, know, you think Maine, you think lobster, right? Or, you know, Vermont blueberries, all that stuff. So um, it seems like she's found a balance, but obviously in the headlines, depending on what, um, you know, media outlet might be reporting this, it could look a lot of different ways, but again, it doesn't seem like there's a, a real, uh, any sort of like malintent, just that's their compromise. Alan, what's, what's your take on the situation and some of the differences between these states and the way they're going to start to regulate um, and push offshore wind forward? I think there's a unique difference between the East Coast of the United States and the West Coast of the United States in regards to offshore wind. And it has to do with the, what we term the continental shelf where does the continent sort of fall off and get into really deep waters? And on the east coast of the United States, there is this uh, extended, relatively shallow portion of the seabed that extends out quite quite far versus California, which it pretty much gets to deep water immediately. Uh, So the Mm -hmm. type of wind turbine you're going to use is greatly different. And I think if, if you look at the percentage of power that could be created on the East Coast and the West Coast, it's essentially 50-50 in terms of the, the raw numbers in terms of what you could produce, or 60-40, I think maybe 60% California, 40% in on the East Coast. So if you, on the East Coast, if you shove the, the wind turbine community three plus miles out, which is what's going to happen, and pretty much anywhere up and down the, 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 the coast, I think, you're still not that deep. Uh, you're, you're not you're not uh-huh. so deep that you're going to go necessarily go to a floating turbine concept. You may, in some places, have to do that. But I 
think they're still going to be anchored. I think the some of them will be anchored because they'll still be close enough to go do that, just like some of the offshore wind that already exists. Uh, on California, you're pretty much talking about floating just because of the nature mm-hmm. of the continental shelf. So uh, in Maine, if you say, hey, we're not, we want to shove you three miles out, that just means you got three miles more to travel to install these turbines and you got three miles more cable but otherwise probably not too much change in the type of turbine you're going to install if you do that in california much bigger deal and california has has really pushed anything like i think they have suspended all oil drilling off the coast of california i I think that happened so one of the reasons why and what the time was the visual like we want to go to the ocean. We're going to go. To, we want to go to the beach. We don't want to see an oil rig on the distance. Well, I think that same thing is going to exist when it comes to wind. When it comes down to it, uh, so you're talking about really floating wind off the coast of California and some anchored, maybe some floating off the off the east coast. Uh, so Maine it may be the first one to do that, but they won't be the last, in my opinion. I think Massachusetts will. If it hasn't done it already, we'll do it. New Jersey will do it. Delaware will do it. Um, because the consequences aren't that much financially on the installation. And and, and the politic, politics of it will force them to do that. Because who owns a house on the, on the ocean? It's not your poorest in your community. It's the wealthiest in your community, typically, in the United States. So there's some political pull there. I, I find it interesting in general to just to see the almost the different personalities, if you call it that, of the states. <laughs> yeah. And California is such a is such a mess in just like what's going on. And and this is not a not a political statement, but it's just when you think of all the, the big issues and yet the things that California sort of has led the way on, like California, you know, leads the way on you know, banning unhealthy things, which also regulates people's lives a little more, which some people don't obviously want, or, you know, renewable energy, like tons of it, you know, California is all for it. Yet again, California has a really huge homeless problem. They also have a huge environmental yep. problem with drought and with yep. fires. So it's weird that you'd think that they're doing all these sort of quote unquote right things for the environment, which it seems like they are. California is not afraid to, you know, make changes for, for environment's sake. Um, but then they're not, it's just such a complex climate out there. There's so much money, just the way things are developed. It's just interesting how they're like seemingly doing the right things and yet have still have a lot of problems that they're trying to solve that other states states don't. It's just interesting that all of them, all of them have just, it's just complicated trying to make life grand for all, but it's not that well, easy. Well, Dan, let me throw this out because I've, there's been some chatter about the, the drought situation in California. You know, there has been more recent discussions because of the the fire that it is about to happen and will inevitably happen in California this year because it's just such drought conditions. It's crazy dry in California right now. Uh, using offshore wind or nuclear, for that matter, to desalinate and to create more water for California so they can uh, maybe address some of the dryness issues and uh, putting out the fire issues, but also, uh, you know, that they have they're talking about restricting water by 15%. I think the governor came out this past week and said we need to cut water usage by 15% across the state. Well, that's a huge problem. And as people exit the state, which is what's happening now, California's going to, yeah. won't you see, they're going to run into a real economic 
model problem where their tax revenue into this into them is going to decrease and it's just this bad cyclical uh way down this economic struggle which will be as as companies leave because of lack of water and all these other reasons uh and fires that the states companies love water hate fires yeah just like just like the lightning strike yeah. right yeah. It, big big you know the checklist <laughs> yeah my company fewer fires more water please right. yeah. and, and they're getting the opposite right now they're getting less water and less mm-hmm. water and more and more fires and even though there doesn't seem to be a real plan to attack the fires i'd say there isn't one but it's not well publicized and the water situation is nuts because they're basically importing a lot of the water from adjacent states via the huge uh aqueducts but it all comes back to energy creation it just does and then the way to solve those problems is with energy creation and how fast are they going to bring on offshore wind and the likelihood of of nuclear to help solve the issues that they have that's a real question right now and i, I like you said there are a lot of struggles going on in inside of california with all the other problems they're having can they navigate and manage manage them simultaneously? I'm not sure that they can. It's which is which is where the struggle will be. And it, it is California is a huge economic power in the world it, by itself. It maybe it's like the seventh largest economic producer in the, in the world. So that's a problem not only for the United States; it's a problem for the world. You need, you need California to be functioning economically, and and power is the one way that it does that. Well, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with desalination, but it's funny you bring that up. I, I was down a YouTube rabbit hole about that many months ago. Just, uh, you know, it's one of those like, why don't we just desalinate water for places that don't have it, like in the Middle East where they, you know, have, you know, drought conditions yeah. all the time. And desalination is really hard, is. like as a, as a problem, yeah. because there's various different ways to do it, many of which are way too expensive. And I believe the cheapest way, and I could be misquoting myself here, um, still has to pump brine back into the ocean so it's not just like you take it all out and then the salt gets like dumped in a pile somewhere like they desalinate and then there's a really salt rich brine so it's like i don't know 10 times 20 times something like that way more salty than it came in goes back into the ocean and that's really not good for the local ecosystem and they don't really know what the long-term effects of that might be so when you think of california and having all their regulations you know, they're pretty cautious about doing stuff like that. I couldn't imagine California, you know, as environmentally friendly as they are, pumping all this extra salty water back into their... Of course, the Pacific Ocean is not salt water, so... Well, yeah, well, um, yeah, it's, it's... Well, is it, it salt is water? Specific, all oceans are salt water, I'm exposed, yeah. I'm exposed, I'm ex- okay, right. all right. I thought I was exposing my lack of knowledge but, here, but, um, but yeah, that could be problematic. It I can, and if you think about where the intellectual population is i mean in terms of like engineering power since today and has set for the last 20 odd years it's in california and there's engineers and scientific people from around the world have come to uh the silicon valley area and up and down california for that matter to create these software companies these computer companies these uh, car companies tesla uh in california so you've got this uh, intellectual powerhouse and, and then the university system is really good in california so you know you have brain power in that state to solve that problem but there's been no incentive to 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 do it I mean, it isn't like the state's gonna put 
10 million dollars into something like that they I, to my knowledge they really have it because you don't you don't see anything happening you don't see any any sort of silicon valley investors investing in desalination so why what what is up with that and it's almost like the elon musk thing right lately where they're talking about pulling co2 out of the air right that that they're the engineers and the, the scientific people are basically saying yeah we're never going to get there so we need to suck it out of suck co2 out of the air we're not gonna do it by re- reducing emissions right now that that's an engineering approach and they're putting money behind it maybe it's the right answer maybe it is the right answer but you think desalination also be on that list because it's such a more immediate problem for california yeah it's complicated um well speaking of the ocean let's talk quickly about uh the beyond project which is a norwegian offshore wind to hydrogen project that's b-e-h-y-o-n-d um, you know, we've talked about these hybrid approaches before. This one's starting to like get a little further along. Uh, I mean, do you see this being a consistent thing in the future? Is is creating hydrogen offshore um, really that important? Really that? I mean, is it? Do you think you see it's going to be viable in the future? It's energy intensive. I, I think that's the the question about it. Is it's really energy intensive to make uh, green hydrogen essentially? Uh, electrolysis breaking water down into hydrogen so it takes a lot of power and then it takes power to transport the hydrogen to wherever it needs to be used in a truck or my guess is trucks and airplanes are probably the or maybe even industrial uses uh furnaces that kind of thing it's if you have a surplus surplus of energy then hydrogen is very viable you know if, if you're if your cost of of creating it is so low like you're running a nuclear power plant and it's going to run at nighttime regardless and the, and there's just very little demand at nighttime then then it makes a lot of sense but if you're if you're having to go build something new the, that cost gets tossed into the cost of the hydrogen production is it worth it probably not probably not i think the economics are not viable today that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to look at it and see how we can make it better or at least start it to see those little seeds you need for any engineering project to like get it going but long term it, it has a lot of struggles because how much money are you going to throw at it before you say that's enough uh, that's a great question you know how much benefit does it provide versus the cost which it it is to produce and we really haven't had that discussion at all. Isn't that weird, Dan? Like, and, and everything else, we have a discussion about how much it costs to manufacture something or produce oil or whatever, pick it. But in hydrogen, it's like, yeah, we're gonna go do this hydrogen thing and costs don't get into that equation very much. And that, that's a struggle, I think, because eventually the costs are gonna get big enough that somebody's gonna ask, like, how much is it costing us to do this? You know, I only, there's only so much money in the country. How do we how do we manage this? And is it a viable investment? I think right now, based on the level of activity you see around the world, the answer is not much viability yet. So moving on to more prototypes. So this is an interesting one. The Power Pod wind turbine is a small. It's a Salt Lake City, Utah uh, based company um, called Halcyum is behind it. And this little, it's about the size of a, of a barrel, like a you know whiskey barrel, beer barrel, whatever you want to call it. And their prototype is a intense lime green and basically you know funnels air into it and then sort of increases the speed of the air to turn an internal turbine. 
Um, so they say this increases the wind speed by 40% and this little one kilogram or I'm sorry, one kilowatt um, turbine is actually a pretty high power output um, comparatively to like the, the full scale wind turbines. Alan, what, what's the, what's the engineering behind this? Uh, you know, you're uh, pretty savvy when it comes to jet engines and all this sort of stuff. This sort of has a similar look to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Like if you imagine like a vertical um, jet engine, I'm not saying it's a jet mm-hmm. engine, but what's what's the engineering here? Does this seem like a like a, a viable prototype for the future that someone would want to put want to put in their backyard or bolt to the roof of their it house? It doesn't seem like it produces enough energy to be worth, worth worthwhile yet. And I think maybe that's just because it's on a smaller scale. Uh, but essentially, they're directing air into a, a rotor that turns a generator it creates power that's essentially it so you're pushing air into this funnel and then it spins a disc and that creates power uh, not anything super complicated from the outside there's no moving parts which i think is probably the the engineering uh, thrust behind it in a sense like with a generating a standard vertical wind turbine or horizontal wind turbine you got this rotating thing out in the open and you you there's some risk associated with that. Um, mm-hmm. Instead, of, you basically have this barrel thing with all all the components internally. You can't necessarily get hurt with it, uh, but it's also going to be very limited on how much energy it can produce because you're really not where the wind is great. You're closer to the ground where the wind is not very good. Uh, as we have seen in all the wind turbine uh, exercises, higher is better, offshore is better, near the ground is bad. Uh, so you're really limited on what it's going to be able to produce. Now, maybe there's some parts of the country, the world, in which there's always wind near the surface. That would make sense. Or if you're going to stall it up in the air, like on a roof or something, maybe it may provide some power. But is it really enough to – is it enough power for the cost of it that it makes sense? Is it is it cheaper than solar? I doubt it. I doubt it. Solar is really cheap right now. It's hard to compete with that. Um you know, wind's having a hard time competing with solar because of the flood of, of uh, solar panels from overseas. But, um, you know, I, I, there's not always one solution to every every power problem. And so you're going to need a variety of solutions based on what's going on. And uh, different forms of energy like this one may satisfy some need. I and mean, maybe there's a marketplace for it. Maybe there's a marketplace, uh, you know, if you're working off-site, you need a generator for some reason for a pump or whatever maybe this is the right answer so you know it just it gets down to the economics of it all businesses revolve around economics and if the economics aren't there then it won't survive if the economics are good and there's a business case for it it will survive so it's sort of the capitalistic way of looking at it but that's the reality of it if we check on it on a year and they're still around then maybe their business model made sense. If they're gone in a year, then probably didn't. Try something else. Yeah, the idea that it could be significantly cheaper than solar, that seems like a like they're certainly gonna obviously have to back that up, but that seems like that's hard to do. Solar's, like you said, solar's very cheap. And then just go in like, hey, we're way cheaper than them. Um, that's definitely like a show me, show me right. kind of uh, statement, right. you know? Because they're crowdfunding. If you go to their website, halcyum.com, um they're actively looking for investors uh you know and this thing is i would say not super attractive to put in your backyard Uh, you know (laughs) the aesthetics are similar to like an air conditioner you know like your your you know the back door unit the hvac system um but you know 
I don't know. We'll see. I mean, solar can be tucked out of the way. It could be thrown your roof. Right. You know, Bingo. I think that's it. For, forget about right. it. Right. That kind of thing is tough to tough to come back right. from. I think that's the key to all this is where are you going to put it? So um, let's talk a little bit about, so in the news cycle, if you look at it right now, there's tons of stories about China deploys their first offshore floating um, wind turbine, or this country has their first floating wind turbine. This country has their first floating wind turbine prototype. So there's lots of um, prototypes getting out there. Floating wind is um, obviously going to be a a big thing going forward. Um, But there's lots of engineering problems that are still yet to be discovered with many of these models. Some will work better than others. Um, some might run into big problems that, again, we're just not going to be aware of. And Alan, you said you were um, pretty locked into this uh, company, The Ocean Cleanup, and their work trying to clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I mean, and amongst all the um, the waterways they can clean up. And their first system, um, the 1.0, had a lot of backing, a lot of engineers behind it. And it sounds like it really fell flat and now they're sort of pivoting. So what was your takeaway from the ocean cleanup? It sounds like that there could be really big learning curves ahead, even for things that seem really well engineered and well thought out. Yes. If go back, everybody go back and and go on YouTube or whatever your video channels are and look for the ocean cleanup uh, about two years ago. And their, their introduction of, maybe it's three years ago now, their introduction of their system to, to, collect plastic bits out in the Pacific Ocean because they had put in numerous, numerous uh, hours of research and study at universities and then in water tanks to simulate the ocean environment and had uh, eventually got enough funding and a lot of backing to create this system to, 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 to haul out into the ocean and start collecting plastics. They thought they had it pretty much figured out. Like it felt like they had the 90 percentile case figured out. So it's, it may not be a hundred percent effective, but it's going to be at least 90 and that's good enough because we need to get the, get that plastic out of that region as much as we can. Great concept. Great ton of engineering work and a lot of really bright people working on this simultaneously felt positive they take the the first unit out to the ocean they have a lot of problems it breaks apart part of it breaks off starts floating away Um, it's not collecting the the plastic they think it's going to collect they sort of regroup in hawaii and 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 make some mods to it still not what they expected uh created some smaller uh collection systems just on the fly just basically cheap and dirty let's see what the physics are let's get the first principles here let's see what's going on and everything they tried some of them worked some of them didn't work but it's a question of how well that they were how much plastic did it attract versus how much it would it cost to operate this this floating system and that's that's where the struggle lies is that they realized that the cost per kilogram of or, or pound of plastic brought out of the ocean was going to be very high for this self-floating system and it wasn't very effective. So they got to this new system, which they introduced, I think it was yesterday, uh, or within the last 48 hours. And there's a really interesting hour-long presentation on YouTube talking about it, but essentially they've really changed the whole design. So instead of a free-floating system, they have a, a couple of boats and a u-shaped piece of of, uh tubing that they're dragging behind it to collect the the plastic into this to catch the plastic Um, completely different model 
And it, it gets to sort of the engineering, Dan. If you think you know everything, and then you go to the ocean, and it just doesn't work because there's a lot of variables in the ocean which don't exist in the lab. And it's really hard to predict what happens over a year span in the ocean. And we just don't know that much about it. And I think the same case exists for wind in the ocean. We're going to learn the hard way, just like Ocean Cleanup did, on what the difficulties are going to be. Don't, don't you just see that? Because the ocean is such a treacherous place for any engineering project. Yeah, and I don't know how you simula simulate that in the lab because... Unless you're putting it in an area where the, you know, it's always calm, which obviously the ocean never right. is, right? And so now you have different levels of choppiness each day, different wave height out there. Um, currents are different. Just different currents. Things are swirling. Right. You know, there's mischievous dolphins stealing. <laughs> you know your <laughs> your equipment. Uh, the Loch Ness monster, the kraken, they're all lurking somewhere beneath. Um, but no, yeah, it just seems. The ocean is really, it just seems super unpredictable, you know, I, yeah. And that, like you said, it seems like that's one of the things that we have the least lockdown of, of our understanding of how it works. Just like the, all Think that. about anything that has been engineered to be in the ocean. How long has it lasted? Like, is there a thousand year piece of engineering out in the ocean? No, but there's thousand years, thousand year structures on land well you know the, the pyramids yeah. in egypt stonehenge is still kicking right yeah. right or you're mm -hmm. like oh on land yeah yeah we kind of got that figured out we know what the environment is we can we can make something that'll last thousands and thousands of years but in the water the ocean is pretty good about killing engineering projects and we have yet to really conquer it the salt's a big problem, the winds, the lightning, <laughs> the the animals, the whole thing, the, the fungus, all the all the growing plants. I mean, there's gonna be something that's gonna try to take down whatever you stick in the ocean. And I I, I just my gut engineering says we're at that 90 percentile case, like kind of like the ocean cleanup is right now. We kind of have a pretty good handle on what we think is gonna happen, but we're gonna learn the hard way. And the question in my mind is, do you massively push out offshore wind within, let's just say it's five years. So you like just flood the market and flood the ocean with a bunch of wind turbines, or do you start getting some out there now and you stage it? I learn from the previous ones and then I get better and better. And maybe I can make something that lasts in the ocean 20, 30 years left by itself, ideally. Uh, but maybe I can't, you know? And, it's just the the in the in the record of uh, humans versus the ocean. The ocean has a wins <laughs> most of those uh, events, and and that's what scares me about it. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of different prototypes for offshore wind, all the different floating things, and until there's hurricanes that roll through them, until there's I don't know, a tsunami that rolls through, like right. there's going to be a lot of learning moments and everyone, I'm sure everyone knows that. Sure. Right. And that'll be really interesting just to see how it all plays out. Cause there will be some public failures, mm. which weren't from bad engineering. They were just like black swan events that, yeah, no one really could have foreseen this. We just didn't understand. Yeah. And here we are, but we're learning. Yeah, and I, I think from the engineering standpoint, if you're talking about an engineer sitting at their desk, designing a system, the first thing that happens and then which they need to happen as a, as, a, as a touch point is, where do I box this problem? Wh at what level do I say it needs to handle X? This wind, this waves, mm -hmm. this current, boom, 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 boom. Okay, so I frame the problem. The problem, and then 
all the engineers get really happy because I got a frame. And I, once I have a frame, I can build inside of that, that frame. Awesome. The problem is if the frame is off, if the frame is slightly off, no matter how well you design it within that box, that, <laughs> that box isn't, isn't the right framework for where you're gonna put the turbine. And I think that's the trouble. I think there's a lot of confidence. I think you get, you get a lot of, and I don't want to say false confidence, but you get that kind of false confidence that, yeah, we're going to be able to, this thing's going to be perfect, but you're only working inside this, this box of constraints. If the, if the ocean throws you something outside of that, then you're in trouble. And that's where we're going to learn the hard way. It's inevitable. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show, leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate it and share with a friend who maybe hasn't heard of us yet. Also, be sure to check out the description or show notes below where you can sign up for Uptime Tech News, our weekly update on the show so you can be alerted when our next podcast episode drops. Thanks again, and we will see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.